Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined this week by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we take a look at the draw for the group stage of the CAF Champions League with some very tough groups. We scrutinise the weather conditions that the 2022 FIFA World Cup will be played in in Qatar, as Stuart has just come back from Qatar, where the World Athletics Championships were held. The nearest supermarket to me was 10 minutes from my hotel. And even at 7pm in the evening, a 10-minute walk there and back left my shirt completely soaked. The humidity, I would suggest, will be the biggest challenge for fans. And lots on the English Premier League this week. We ask her how significant is Liverpool's eight-point lead over Manchester City at this early stage of the season. We look at Tottenham's crisis and at the huge number of players that are out on loan from Premier League clubs. Firstly, the road to the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations is underway, less than three months after the 2019 edition in Egypt. The preliminary round has started, with the winners going through to the group stage that kicks off in November. So Sao Tome et Principe were 3-1 winners away to Mauritius, so it could be exciting times for them. South Sudan, 2-1 winners over the Seychelles. Djibouti drew 1-1 with the Gambia, so a chance for the Scorpions to progress with that away goal. And Liberia beat Chad 1-0. The second legs are on this weekend. Let's go to the CAF Champions League and the draw was made on Wednesday with some very difficult looking groups for this edition. So in Group A we have the five-time champions TP Mazembe of DR Congo. We have Zambia's Zesco United, Primero Diagosto of Angola and either Zamalek of Egypt or Senegal's Generation Foot as CAF has ordered that the second leg of their qualifier will be played on the 24th of this month after Generation Foot had initially refused to play as the date and venue was changed at short notice. Uh, Group B has Al-Ahli of Egypt, the record eight-time champions, Etoile du Sahel of Tunisia, the 2007 winners, Al-Hilal of Sudan and Zimbabwe's FC Platinum. In Group C, there's Mamelodi Sundowns of South Africa, Widad Casablanca of Morocco, Algeria's USM Algier and Angola's Petro Atletico. So two Angolan clubs are in the group stage. And in Group D, Raja Casablanca of Morocco, Esperance of Tunisia, JS Kabylie of Algeria and DR Congo's AS Vita Club. Uh, which group stands out for you there, Ida? Well, this one has a lot of heavyweights, Steve, but if I am to pick out just one group, then Group C has to be it for me. For a couple of reasons, top of which is basically what everyone is talking about, that being the Mamelodi Sundowns and the Weeded Casablanca love story, (laughs) to put it lightly, (laughs) continuing. And um, you look at these two teams, they faced each other severally in the last five years. And for Pizzo Mosemane, it will be the fifth consecutive year that he will be in the CAF Champions League. Don't forget, he won it back in 2016. Then he got to the semi last year. And, uh, you know, one would be forgiven for thinking that, look, Masandawana will be wanting to better that record and make it all the way to the CAF Champions League final this season. And Steve, once you round that off with uh, the likes of Petro Atletico from Angola, once you bring in the 2015 runners-up, USMA, that being uh, USM Algiers, look, it's a very, very tough group. 
Group D is another one, Steve, because all of these teams have been previous champions. You look at Esperance, you look at uh, Raja Casablanca of Morocco. Granted, those two might be the front runners for, you know, anyone looking at it strictly on paper. But, you know, Algeria's JS Cabillier and uh, DRC's AS Vita might not be the teams that everyone is looking at in Group D. But Vita and Raja did meet in the 2018 uh, CAF Confederation Cup final, meaning these are not small teams, you know. And uh, the Moroccans won that, if you remember. So I would imagine that uh, the Congolese will really want to exact some form of revenge, at least, um, you know, in the group stage. And uh, as for Group B, Steve, actually, there's another very long-standing rivalry there. Al Ali have been drawn with uh, longtime rivals, Etoile Sahel of, of Tunisia. These two teams, Steve, are always trying to one-up each other. And uh, speaking of Group B, by the way, Zimbabwe's Platinum FC have been drawn there and they've really been uh, put in with the big boys, haven't they? Um, let me say that we're not fancying our chances much there either. <laughs> FC Platinum through to the group stage for the second time. They were there in the previous edition, but in their six group games, didn't manage any wins, had two draws and four defeats. And the coach says that he hopes at least to improve on that. And the group stage of the Champions League kicks off at the end of November. Now, the third round of qualifying for the 2020 Olympic Games women's football tournament was completed with some surprise results. There are five rounds of qualifying, two more to go, and only one place is guaranteed for Africa, with a runner-up going into a playoff. Now, Africa's most successful team, Nigeria, were knocked out by Ivory Coast after a 1-1 draw in Lagos, which puts Ivory Coast through on away goals. The Super Falcons are nine-time African champions, but they miss out on three editions of the Olympic in a row. Asisat Oshwala scored in that second leg in Lagos, uh, one of the greatest African female footballers ever. Uh, she's never been to the Olympic Games, though. Uh, Kenya beat Ghana's Black Queens 1-0 after extra time to win the tie on the same scoreline. Another surprise there. Cameroon beat DR Congo 3-2 on aggregate, although they lost the second leg 2-1. And Zambia won 2-0 away to Botswana to progress 3-0 on aggregate. So still two more rounds of qualifying to go. And at these qualifiers are pretty brutal, Ida. <laughs> um, Steve, yeah, it was pretty brutal for the teams that exited. But I will tell you this, it was absolutely mad scenes in Nairobi um, at the stadium once the Kenya women's team bundled out uh, the Ghana Black Queens. It was a stunning result. And for us here in Kenya, those invested in women's football, we know what it took from the ladies. These are these are players who still haven't been paid, Steve, their bonuses and their allowances going back all the way to the 2016 Auckland, that being the Africa Women's Cup of Nations. And for them to pull off such a huge result, Steve, I think just spoke loads to their character. It was a huge testament of uh, their character. But let me talk about Nigeria for a minute because... One would be forgiven for thinking that maybe the Super Falcons just don't take the Olympics too seriously. And if that's the case, it would be quite unfortunate because on the men's side, they do have uh, an Olympic gold medal. But that aside, I really don't think it was an issue of um, lack of seriousness on the team. 
because we just now have seen uh, Thomas Denabi resign from his position as uh, the Super Falcons head coach. And once you hear some of the rumors coming out, you know, uh, huge issues to do with team selection where, you know, some are alleging that, you know, his hand was being forced just in terms of trying to weed out some of the more influential players out of the team who we know were protesting over unpaid allowances. You know, it's the same script, different cast all over Africa. But this one was going just back to the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. And it's it's quite unfortunate Prior to the third round, probably when the Tokyo 2020 Olympics qualifiers were starting, many people would have, uh, you know, put out a prediction of Nigeria versus Cameroon and uh, South Africa versus Ghana, let's say, in uh, the fourth round. But now we see it's totally all cards in the air. The tables have really been turned around. It's going to be Kenya versus Zambia and Ivory Coast versus Cameroon. Uh, Well, certainly not many of us would have predicted that. Uh, Thanks, Ida. Uh, Next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, a look ahead to the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Uh, Now, the World Athletics Championships ended last Sunday in Doha in Qatar. And Qatar is, of course, hosting the World Cup in 2022. And it was a controversial choice because of the weather and the fact that it's a small country with little football culture. Now, Stuart was at the World Athletics Championships and he's been to Qatar several times before. Uh, But this was the biggest sporting event that the country has hosted. So, Stuart, any clues now about how the World Cup might go? Well, Steve, Qatar is a strange country. Unlike anywhere I've been before, it is a population of only three million, of whom only 300,000 are actually Qatari. So the country is effectively run by immigrants, mainly from Africa and Asia. Several of the bus drivers I spoke to were Kenyan or Ugandan and similarly the hotel staff. And there are also lots from Asia, particularly India, Pakistan and the Philippines. And it's a hard life. Taxi drivers, I understand, work 12 hours a day, seven days a week, living apart from their family because they can earn more money to support the family by being in Qatar than at home. Now, of course, there are big issues as to the process by which Qatar was awarded the World Cup, whether it should go to a country with such a difficult climate and with no real football background. But the decision has been made. The 2022 World Cup will be in Qatar. My experience of working at five sports events in the country is that they're all very well organised. And let's be honest, there are some positives for fans about Qatar. Steve, remember when you and I were in Rio together in 2014? I was offered two tickets to watch England in Manaus, only to discover afterwards that that was 5,000 kilometres away. And the same was more or less true about the World Cups in South Africa and Russia in terms of the distance fans had to travel. Whereas in 2022, all eight venues are in and around the city of Doha. The furthest one is 55 kilometres away. 55, not 5,000. Many are just 10 kilometres apart, and this would make it possible for fans to watch two games in a day, completely impossible in any of the previous World Cups. 
Qatar is a Muslim country with strict laws on drinking alcohol. However, again, I was assured that these laws would be relaxed during the World Cup and that drinking would be allowed in the fan zones. The city is in the process of building a new underground metro rail system, which again will make it easy to get to most of the stadiums. There are buses and certainly by UK standards, taxis are extremely cheap. So I have no doubt that attending a World Cup in Qatar can be an enjoyable and successful experience, albeit with some challenges. Uh, Steve, it's a strange experience watching sport in Qatar. The daily temperature during the World Athletics was about 38, but with the external air conditioning and the air blowers in the stadiums, the temperature was only about 24. But one thing I find a challenge and also several athletes I spoke to, was a constantly going from hot to cold. Like you're indoors, you go outside and the heat hits you, your glasses steam up instantly. Then you get on an air-conditioned bus and you wish you'd brought your coat. You get to the stadium and you go through the same process of cold to hot back to cold. I asked Great Britain sprinter Adam Jamili, who was competing last week, how difficult he had found the conditions. It takes some getting used to, I guess. But we were in Dubai before, and um, you just got to you just got to prepare for it. Hydrate well, tailor, uh, tailor your warm up for the heat. But it feels good. Like it, the, the stadium is unbelievable. Um, the tracks are really quick, and uh, everyone's in good shape. So, with the World Cup coming up, obviously you're a footballer. With, how would you feel about playing 90 minutes here? With that? They're going to they're going it's going to be tough for those guys, but they can prepare for it. They've got a lot. They know they're, they're well. They've got plenty of sort of time to plan for it and get their bodies ready but that's going to be tough for them so they're going to have to be on top of hydration because that's where we could see many cramps and injuries and stuff but it should be fine. I also went to a presentation by the Football Legacy Commission. They told us that seven of the eight stadiums will have external air conditioning for the World Cup but they didn't actually expect to use them much because during the World Cup in December the temperature will be a lot cooler than in October. But the humidity is a different issue. The nearest supermarket to me was 10 minutes from my hotel. And even at 7 p.m. in the evening, a 10-minute walk there and back left my shirt completely soaked. The humidity, I would suggest, will be the biggest challenge for fans. So the humidity, a big issue then. Uh, now, Stuart, the crowds were small on most days at the World Athletics Championships, but uh, one thing I noticed was that there were many different nationalities represented among the fans, including many African nations. Uh, Qatar, as you say, a country with many nationalities. Attendances were low at the athletics, but don't forget the sessions ran from 4pm to midnight to accommodate foreign television. So on a working day, the session started before people had finished work. And it's also quite hard to be in the stadium at midnight if you start work at 6 a.m. the next day. And the stadium was full at the weekends. And as you mentioned, on the nights with distant races, the stadium was rocking with Kenyans and Ethiopians particularly cheering their runners on. But what makes the World Cup different from athletics is that I think a lot more people will come from around the world to be part of this World Cup experience. And I would fully expect to see the stadiums packed out for most of the World Cup games. 
Well, very exciting with the World Athletics Championships and uh, Stuart thinking that the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar will be a success. Uh, hot weather, but uh, not so bad as it will be played in November and December, but uh, could still be very humid there. And also one big factor is that the distances between the stadiums will be far, far shorter than at any other edition of the FIFA World Cups. So that will make it much more easier for fans to travel around. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And now we had an error in last week's show where we spoke to Nigeria midfielder John Ogu about the frustrations of getting little game time with the Super Eagles. We incorrectly said that Ogu had moved to play in India after leaving Israeli club Hapoel Beersheba. Ogu is actually currently unattached, so our apologies for the error there. Now you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. You can also listen to the show on our New Look website, that's planetsport.tv. There are interviews with various sports stars there, including Christian Achu of Ghana and Patson Daka of Zambia, plus Collins Fai of Cameroon and Brazil's Kaká. That's on our New Look website, planetsport.tv. Our other shows are there too that's planet sport and the planet sport rugby podcast so if you're a rugby fan we have podcasts from the rugby world cup in japan where the group stage ends this weekend tom ellis and liam flint are in tokyo they brought us the egyptian dream podcast from the africa cup of nations in egypt so as well as taking you through the rugby action they are sampling the culture the sights and the sounds of japan here is a taste of one of the podcasts as tom and liam went to watch the famous japanese sport of sumo wrestling. We sat in the stands of Ryo Goku, Koku Gikan, the national sumo stadium here in Tokyo. It's Japan's national sport, a ritualistic form of wrestling that developed out of ancient Shinto rites for a good harvest. Um, so what we're seeing here is half-naked, very muscular, rather large men in some kind of costume uh, battle each other in the ring at the centre of this stadium which sits underneath the roof of a shrine. They're on a stage which has a round circle in the middle and we've watched a few games now, Liam, haven't we? A few bouts. Yeah, we're definitely getting the, the feel for it now. Definitely a spectator sport, that's for sure. There's a lot of ritual. Didn't realise how much ritual went into this. So there's a good five minutes of preparation. So they'll get down on their haunches, they'll bow, they'll look to the crowd, they'll throw some salt and then the actual event itself is over normally within 20 seconds so there we go we're just watching one now crowd are getting into it so it's it's very much a display of masculinity very punchy very quick uh, but there's a very there's a lot of deep meaning behind it and these guys are packing a lot of weight so when they hit each other you can feel it in Yokohama I think and there you can hear the crowds cheer as one of the wrestlers gets pushed over the side of the rope they give a bow to each other and there's one final ritual from the referee. It's interesting because the rituals do tend to take longer than the actual bout, it seems, as they toss the salt up in the air. Everyone here is enraptured by it. It's a real mix of crowd. There's some young people, quite a lot of old people as well, in the stands, and everyone's looking at their run sheets and watching on with a lot of admiration for these athletes. Well, one thing we know for sure is that the Japanese do love their sumo. Yeah, they seem to have scorecards, they've got fixture lists, they're definitely keeping up with this, and everybody's very quiet, everyone's very respectful, it's a serious thing, and there's a lot of people here, thousands of people in this arena, 
and we're just very privileged to be here. Indeed, it's a really traditional experience. It's quite incredible actually to watch. I wouldn't fancy myself in the ring. How about you? I think I could last a couple of seconds if I ran away from him. But I think as soon as we uh, touched and there was some holding going on, I think I'd very quickly be taking my place again in the crowd by force. So probably probably best to watch at this point. Yeah, I'd either have to go for the legs or run around in circles until they got tired. And then I think as they were running at me, I'd just have to duck out the way and hope that they left the circle. Anyway, let's leave it to them, the professionals. Well, amazing stuff. Uh, some insight into the famous Japanese sport of sumo wrestling. That's Tom Ellis and Liam Flint in Tokyo. So if you are interested in the Rugby World Cup, uh, you can download the Planet Sport Rugby podcast app uh, with Tom and Liam giving us updates uh, in their daily podcast there. Also, you can access it via our website, planetsport.tv. Or if you do a search for Planet Sport Rugby podcast, you'll find it there as well. So a daily insights from the Rugby World Cup in Japan with Tom Ellis and Liam Flint on the Planet Sport Rugby podcast. Well, let's go to the English Premier League now and there's an international break this weekend, so no Premier League games. So we can catch up on an eventful match day eight where Manchester City were stunned by Wolves and Liverpool now have an eight-point lead. Uh, So, Stuart, do we say it's early days still or is this now a really significant lead for Liverpool? Well, Steve, I never thought I would be having this conversation with you in early October discussing whether Manchester City are already out of the Premier League title race. Of course they aren't, but an eight-point lead for Liverpool does seem incredibly significant. And the way it happens just shows you how the momentum is with Liverpool. After 90 minutes last Saturday, Liverpool were being held to a draw by Leicester and with Manchester City having a relatively straightforward game against struggling Wolves the following day, it looked as if Manchester City were about to close the gap. Then a stoppage time penalty gave Liverpool victory and Manchester City the following day were deservedly beaten by Wolves. I was watching the game on television in Doha and at halftime the commentators were saying how rare it was to see a team going off drawing at Manchester City and feeling disappointed. But that was a fair summary of the game. Wolves could have been ahead in the first half and they scored twice in the second. But Liverpool have continued their 100% record and Manchester City incredibly find themselves only two points ahead of Crystal Palace who are in sixth. And Palace, ironically, are their next opponents in the first game after the international break. And how incredible is it that if Manchester City were to lose to Crystal Palace, they would be below Palace in the table and probably out of the top four. (laughs) Uh, We'll see if that happens then. Now, what would you say about Tottenham, Stuart? Uh, In the final of the UEFA Champions League just four months ago, doing well in their new stadium, but now looking like a club in crisis. At the beginning of the season, you'd have said that Liverpool's next two games against Manchester United and Tottenham were going to be tricky top four games. But what a great time for Liverpool to be playing Manchester United and Tottenham with both clubs in crisis just at the moment. I read in my newspaper this morning that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Mauricio Pochettino are potentially one game away from being fired. And then I read that Pochettino would be the man to go to Manchester United to replace Solskjaer. I mean, what nonsense. But I'm not sure that either manager is actually facing 
imminent sack. But it's an indication of the pressure that this has been written. Tottenham are ninth with only three wins out of eight. And last week must have been one of the blackest in their history. Now, Bayern Munich are an excellent team and there's no shame in losing to them in the Champions League. But conceding seven goals at home is beyond embarrassing. And then you go to Brighton, frankly, candidates for relegation, and lose 3-0. And that their goalkeeper, Hugo Lloris, is out for probably two months with injury just makes it so much worse. It certainly is very hard to understand, as you say, how Tottenham have gone from arguably being one controversial decision from winning the Champions League final to being in complete crisis. And talking about crisis, what about Manchester United? In the bottom half of the Premier League table, following that defeat at Newcastle United, and Newcastle before that game were second from bottom. Really is unbelievable how uh, poorly Manchester United are doing this season so far. And uh, Stuart, the huge number of players out on loan continues to be an issue. We talked last week about problems for players at big clubs getting game time and I commented that Manchester City had a squad of 38 players. Well, I saw some incredible statistics this week about the number of Premier League players out on loan and in addition to their squad of 38, Manchester City have 36 contracted players out on loan. Chelsea have 28 Even Watford, bottom of the table, have 24 players out on loan. Brighton have 20, Wolves 18, Southampton 16, Norwich 15. It really is an incredible number of players under contract to Premier League clubs who are not only not in the first-team squad, but not even considered good enough to keep at the club as backup. It really is incredible. And uh, Stuart, still lots of talking points about the VAR. Last weekend, Jordan Ayew, scored Crystal Palace's winning goal against West Ham. He had been given offside by the on-field officials, but VAR overruled it. And Steve, I can tell you that there have been 15 decisions overturned by VAR in the Premier League this season. That's one every five games, 11 goals which were disallowed by VAR, three goals which were awarded by VAR, and one penalty retake. And the average time to make a VAR decision is one minute and 22 seconds. Yeah, that's what I don't like about it. It does uh, take too long, I would say, although obviously a lot of replays do need to be analysed. And uh, Stuart, uh, we're seeing more youngsters in the Premier League this season. For me, one of the encouraging things we are seeing this season is the number of young players being given their chance. Chelsea are currently banned from signing new players and they've reacted by giving young players a chance. Tammy Abrahams is in his fifth season at Chelsea but had not started a Premier League game before this season. He'd been on loan at Bristol City, Swansea City and Aston Villa. But Frank Lampard, the new manager, has given him his chance and he's already scored eight Premier League goals this season. Abrahams is 21. Mason Mount is just 20 and he spent two years on loan at Vitas Arnhem and then at Derby County where Frank Lampard was his manager. And he obviously impressed Lampard because he had never started a game for Chelsea before this season but he started every game this season, all eight, and scored four goals and he'd even been capped for England. Manchester United have a great tradition of trusting youth. Going back 60 years, they were known as the Busby Babes. And the so-called Class of 92, that Manchester United team which won the Under-18 Youth Cup, out of which came the Neville brothers, Paul Scholes, David Beckham, Nicky Butt, 
and Ryan Giggs. And last month, United won a Europa League game 1-0 over Astana, Kazakhstan, with Mason Greenwood just 17 scoring and playing alongside two 19-year-olds, Tabith Chong and Angel Gomez. In the summer, Manchester United sold Romelu Lukaku and Greenwood has certainly benefited from more playing time, as well as the cup times. He's had five appearances in the Premier League. Now, last weekend was the first time for nine years that three teenagers scored in the same weekend. Brighton's Aaron Conley, Chelsea's Callum Hudson-Odoi and Newcastle United's Matty Longstaff. Now, I'm wondering, is it just coincidence or is this the beginning of a new trend towards clubs believing that persevering with young players rather than paying 50 to $100 million to sign new players is the way forward? Frank Lampard has certainly said he is determined to stick with his young players, recognising that it will take them time to reach maturity. But the question I would have is, will the normally impatient owner of Chelsea, Roman Abramovich, give Lampard the time that he needs, which he hasn't tended to do in the past? Sure, well, that's a very big question indeed. Uh, thanks a lot, Stuart. And now on social media this week, asking for your thoughts on the race in the English Premier League. Can Manchester City catch Liverpool at the top? Early days, you could say, but eight points clear are Liverpool with eight games gone. There are still 30 matches to play. So do you think that Manchester City can catch up or are Liverpool set already to become the champions? Will the Reds drop that many points and can the Citizens win almost all of their remaining 30 games? That's that is the challenge before them. What are your thoughts? You can go to our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Can Man City catch Liverpool at the top? So that's it for this week's show. From me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.